the pathogens, the ones that we work on, typically don't have any countermeasures, so they don't have uh, drugs or vaccines or antibody therapies. So we'll be working with things like Ebola viruses. We're on the animal side, but we work with zoonotic viruses. So zoonotic meaning things jumping from animals to people. So similar to what, you know, the origins of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. If you've ever seen the movie Contagion, Matt Damon, right? They got the bats and the pigs and then the people. That's sort of a potential real world scenario. Brilliant minds studying the world's most dangerous pathogens may seem like science fiction, but these facilities and the scientists who protect us from biothreats are very real. The biosafety level four uh, means that we want to work with certain types of pathogens that can actually infect humans. So level four is the maximum level of protection. We actually recognize the need to work together with other biosafety uh, level four uh, laboratories it was simply too big a task for one laboratory or one country. I'm Greg. And I'm Michelle. This is Inspect and Protect, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency's official podcast. BSL4Z Network is short for, get ready, the Biosafety Level 4 Zoonotic Laboratory Network. <laughs> okay, that was a bit of a mouthful. The BSL-4Z network was established by the CFIA in 2016 to improve biosurveillance, develop trust, and enhance knowledge sharing worldwide. They connect animal and human health organizations from Australia, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States and Canada. Basically, it's science diplomacy in action. Dr. Pramal Silva, co-chair of the network and chief science operating officer for the CFIA, is here to chat with us today. Back in uh, 2016, uh, we uh, we actually recognized the need to to work together to uh, to enhance collaboration and our preparedness uh, against uh, emerging pathogens. And what was different was we reached out to um, both animal health laboratories and human health laboratories because of if you are to work on emerging diseases, most of them are zoonotic you got to work with both types of uh, laboratories and pathogens. So we invited scientists uh, and decision makers from 17 such laboratories, and we discussed in terms of, wouldn't it be a great idea if we were to work together? It's kind of like the International Space Station, but for high level biosecurity kind of science. Yeah, that's a good analogy, actually, I like that. We really wanted to know what it was like to work around the world's deadliest diseases. So we reached out to Dr. Brad Pickering, a scientist working at our Winnipeg lab. I work at the Canadian Science Centre for Human and Animal Health. It's a unique lab. It's, it's the only biosafety level four facility in Canada at uh, this time. Brad's the head of the special pathogens unit. He offered to walk us through a day at his job. In order to get into the lab, you have to wear a suit. So it's kind of like if you're going to go skydiving, you want to make sure you you know, you fold and you, your parachute's ready to go. You want to make sure it's working properly, right? Uh, so we have to do that before we go into uh, the containment area. So we, we lay that out. We make sure there's no leaks. We got good gloves, things like that. We also communicate with radios. So we always have somebody on a radio outside. We've got a way where you can talk to somebody outside, right? And they say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll bring it. And, and, you know, they can, they can dunk it through these dunk tanks, which is, uh, it's a disinfectant. So it's a way of getting things in if you forget something. And, and inevitably that always happens. You got to make sure you have your bathroom break before you go in. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, don't drink too much coffee, right? So, because it's not a quick exit either, right? So if you're going to go into the lab, you've got your safety test for your suit, and then you're gonna you're gonna put it on. You're gonna radio communicate, make sure everything is good, and then you'll go through walk through a chemical shower, walk into the lab, uh, and then you'll get to work. And like you said, I mean, you're in there for whatever time you need, but it it, it takes time to get in, and then it takes time to get out. I liked your example of it's like skydiving. Skydiving Brad just jumps out of the plane and, oh, no, I forgot something. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What do you think would surprise most people about this world's highest containment lab that you work at? You know, I think the perception is it's, I mean, it is an advanced area and there's a lot of safety, but a lot of the work that we're doing is generally the same as what you do anywhere else it's just that we have to wear these suits right so you're in you're in this area you're in a positive pressure suit and you're you're working with all these things and some people don't like wearing a suit so that's one of the things right you have to find out whether you feel claustrophobic or not oh fair um so that's an important it's not it's not for everybody they get in and they're going okay i'm on a breathing hose i'm not really comfortable or or they are uh, so that's something that you have to kind of mentally get through and make sure you're connecting to the air disconnecting from the air you were mentioning pathogens and, you know, they're the world's deadliest, let's say, zoonotic pathogens. Like, tell us about this research. The the pathogens, like I mentioned before, the ones that we work on typically don't have any countermeasures. Uh, Nipah virus, along with Ebola virus, we also work with Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. So that's another hemorrhagic disease. This is in the Middle East, spread by ticks, which uh, seems to be increasing in numbers. And it's a problem more for public health. But they have these these uh, hyaloma ticks, and they're like, kind of like wolves. They're if you ever watch a video of them, they're super fast, and and you know they kind of crawl towards you. So if you don't like ticks, you wouldn't like these guys. And so you can imagine if they're on the animal and you're working with them, they'll just kind of run onto you. And if you get a tick bite, then now you're you know you might get infected. So that sounds terrifying. Have you ever been surprised when you were in there, like, oh, this is new to me? So it's funny because there's animal diseases that actually make animals really sick. So African swine fever virus makes swine really sick. Ebola virus is not nearly as bad as African swine fever virus in pigs, where you'd go, oh man, this is Ebola virus, like it's going to be terrible. But in that pig, it's not nearly as bad. So I always find that interesting that you see these animals really, I guess, hardy, right? They're able to deal with a lot of things. They're constantly in, uh, you know, more of a, I'd say, adverse uh, natural conditions and people who are always sanitizing, cleaning, and uh, yeah, they're they're able to handle a lot. So I think that's interesting of seeing the results of these animals when they're dealing with these high-consequence viruses. I have kind of another weird question, but like when we say, you know, we say African swine fever isn't transmissible to humans or that kind of stuff, like how how is that scientifically proven? Is it just observed that it doesn't happen? I mean... Presumably, we don't put a, a pig and a human in the same room and just wait to see what happens. Like, you know, we, we see in TV and sci-fi all the time kind of thing. Like, how, yeah. how, do, we, how do we determine that? Yeah, I mean, I think most of this is through uh, observation, right? So African swine fever has been around for a really long time, and there's never been a documented case of someone uh, getting sick. Same with uh, a number of other diseases that are, are not zoonotic, right? So they just stay with the animals, and, and, and that's it. So people can give diseases to animals just like animals can give disease to us. And really, that's a concern that we get with SARS-CoV-2. So if you're looking at uh, recent studies in the United States and white-tailed deer, uh, you know, they're finding these positive animals in the States. And so now that's 
kind of gets you to the point saying, well, it didn't originate in the deer. So where did it come from? Likely people, right? We're the main, uh, you know, hamster running on the wheel for continuing the propagation of COVID-19. So we're the, we're the biggest factor. So where are we spreading it and where is it going? That's interesting. So do you work on a lot of COVID-related research? Obviously, since that hit about a year and a half, two years ago, almost now, um, we've had a number of projects. And, and so we've got a collaborative project where we're looking at a, a nanoparticle vaccine with some collaborators at the University of Quebec in Montreal. And so we're looking at trying to, you know, develop a, a vaccine and, and really look into something called antibody dependent enhancement. The idea being that, you know, on a first infection, so this is what happens in dengue fever is, is you don't have uh, much of a reaction often. And then the second infection, actually, the antibodies that your body makes will help that virus come in and it actually enhances the disease. And so one of the concerns early on is, you know, for people that were to get natural infection or if you were to vaccinate, would that vaccine actually enhance a real infection? And so that was something that we were trying to and and are looking at. Uh, Most of the studies right now, clinical wise, there hasn't been showing any of that, which is great. That's one of the projects we're looking at. Uh, We're also looking at a a drug uh, project with an industry partner in the Public Health Agency of Canada to try and use to treat treat COVID. Uh, so that's been ongoing, and you know it looks like there's some promising results there, which I think is pretty interesting. You know, we've got uh, another, I guess, technology that we've been working on for a while. So it's a rapid test that we're trying to work on. You go to the to a nurse, they take it, get sent to a lab, they do a test, and that's using a, a, a reverse transcriptase quantitative PCR assay. So we're working on this. CRISPR assay, which would be, you could set it up where you are, you could take the swab, put it into a tube, put it into a machine, you'd have results in say, you know, 15, 20 minutes, and it would be about the same as that, right? So you can imagine airports, things like that. I think this could be really important as we, I mean, COVID's not going anywhere. So I think, you know, it'll, it'll be really useful. And the other part of this technology is you can use it for any pathogen, right? So if we can get this set up to work well, if there's influenza, if there's something else, we could actually tailor it to work for that. So can I ask, do you think the BSL-4Z network, having been established since 2016, helped prepare for the COVID crisis? With the network, we had, um, like early on when the pandemic first happened, there was no country that had um, an isolate of the virus, right? So if you don't have the isolate, you can't do any work with it other than just detect it. One of the first places that was part of the network actually was Australia. They were able to isolate SARS-CoV-2, and uh, because there was a collaboration there, you know, they were really helpful and uh, in sharing the isolate with these partner laboratories, which really gives a boost to everybody. Right, sharing it in a network like that can actually boost countries' ability to diagnose, ability to to make antibodies, to do all these different types of things uh, is really important. And so I think, you know, you have strength in that collaboration to be able to do that. Knowing that the network helped prepare for COVID, it really highlights the importance of science diplomacy. But the effort to connect animal and human health organizations across the world is only just starting. Greg and I spoke again with Dr. Pramal Silva to better understand the next steps. So this is kind of a huge question, but what would you say that the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about research and collaborating in science diplomacy? It is about actually uh, reaching out to like-minded uh, uh, players uh, globally. 
uh, and to establish uh, trusted partnerships uh, during peacetime. It's really important that we actually do this uh, uh, during peacetime because you can have meaningful conversations about what type of collaboration should we have, what kinds of preparation should we have, what kind of training we should we have. It's very hard to do this during a crisis because everyone is in a very reactive mode. So, so the diplomacy for us was always reach out to trusted partners and, and put the right mechanisms in place and build the trust among among the partners so that it is a very simple call you don't need clearance from top of the governments or anything like that to reach out to the partners because it's already a pre-arranged um, mechanism that we have so having worked like this together it actually helped all the laboratories not just canada we actually have an inventory of all the scientists with their expertise that became very useful with the coronaviruses because we immediately knew who were the experts in this field uh, across the lab network, for example. It seems like it's just uncannily good timing that this network like that was set up right before COVID hit. It is actually so true. No one in the wildest dreamed and expected the pandemic, I have to say. I mean, we our scope was mostly, okay, how can we prepare better for an emerging disease? Many, while we, we always thought we, 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 we should prepare for a pandemic, you know, it seemed to be such a distant kind of a thing from reality. Yeah, so, so, but when it really came, what it showed was the world was unprepared by and large, uh, except for, uh, I think on the laboratory space, I was so happy to see how well the laboratories were able to respond, like in terms of coming together. And that mobilized a huge research effort worldwide too, uh, in terms of, and that's why I think we saw uh, the emergence of vaccines in record time, very efficacious vaccines, several candidate vaccines that, that became available uh, within a year. So it kind of unheard of progress because the science community was uh, was prepared. It's not only just because of BSL-4C net, there are many other uh, laboratories who actually were positioning themselves for future. Thanks for Mal and Brad for chatting with us today. To end our episode, let's listen into the BSL-4ZNet conference held online this fall. You're going to hear the voice of Dr. Debbie Eagles as she touches on the importance of open and transparent communication with both international partners and the public. She's the Deputy Director for the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness. I think that transparency piece is important, but I'm not pretending that it's easy. It's incredibly important that we, we are transparent about the work um, that we do, that we're comfortable to talk about any of the work that we're doing, and that includes for example, you know, work with animals. We may in the past not have been so comfortable to talk about, but if we're comfortable to do the research, then we should be comfortable and transparent about talking about it. I think again, that developing that relationship with, for example, our local media or our national media around all the work that we're doing from a positive perspective, is again really important such that during a pandemic, it isn't a case of looking at us going, we don't know what you're doing, we haven't heard of you before. So I think being proactive and open about that at all times, not just during a pandemic, is incredibly important. This is Inspect and Protect, the CFIA's official podcast, where we like to talk about food safety, plant health, and animal health. 
and now the world's deadliest diseases too, I guess. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and probably whichever other app you like. For more information on the BSL4Z network, Dr. Silva, and Dr. Pickering, check out our episode description. See you next time.